We are jumping into this message and this unexpected Christmas. I'm kind of excited about where this is headed. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, if you have your Bible. We're going to look at Christmas from several different angles. And if you have your Bible and your notes there, there's some pins down the aisle. If you're near an aisle, will you pass those down and your whole group can get those? We are going to check this out from a perspective of Matthew. When you open up the Bible, we're sort of used to having all the Bible together. And so we kind of, uh, we take for granted the fact that we see the whole book. It might be a little healthier sometimes, though, to think of it as manuscripts put together. So you've got this whole book in the Bible, and each one is a different manuscript written by an author and then put together into one nice binding for us. But if you think of it as manuscripts, we have four manuscripts of when Jesus Christ was walking on planet Earth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's awesome. That's amazing to have four accounts of somebody's life from so long ago. And so when you're thinking about Christmas and you have four accounts of that time, you would sort of expect it to be a really big deal of when this moment happened, when this, this birth happened. But two of them don't even write about it. You have Mark and John. These two books, they start with John the Baptist 30 years after Jesus is born. So they don't even talk about the birth of Christ. Then you jump over to Luke. Luke talks about an, a story, but it's the story of an angel. And the angel goes over to John the Baptist's parents, or mom, tells her all about what's happening, and then goes over to Mary, who was a virgin at the time, and says, by the way, the Son of God is now within you. And then that story starts to move, and it's a, an amazing nativity story. But when you go into Matthew, Matthew's the strangest one of them all. Because somewhere along your life, you probably heard that the New Testament is, is about the more of our modern age, kind of about where we are now. The Old Testament's a really long time ago. And so you opened up the New Testament, kind of excited, opened up to Matthew chapter 1, and you start to read, and there it is, just name after name after name. This genealogy goes on, this whole chapter, and it seems so incredibly boring. In fact, let's, let's enjoy some of this boring writing right now. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and on and on it goes. And those of you that had just opened your Bible to Matthew 1.1, you're thinking, this is what everybody's so excited about? This is what everybody's talking about? This is ridiculous. And then you close it and you put it away, and 10 years later when you have kids, you open it up again. Is that? Did I get anyone on? <laughs> no? All right. You guys aren't quite awake. We'll get there. We'll wake up. This is amazing stuff happening here. Why, why would Matthew do this? What was Matthew thinking with this sort of genealogy? That's the first question on your notes there that I want to jump into. Why did he start with a genealogy? What was Matthew thinking with this? Well, the first thing we have to know is that he is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. That's kind of a big deal. Because a Jewish audience, they know the Old Testament very well. And what they are looking for, the big question that has to be answered first, is this person you're about to talk about, this king of all kings, the Messiah, is he in the line of David? Because if he's not in the line of David, then you might as well stop. I don't want to hear about these amazing miracles. I don't even want to hear about the cross and being born again. I... I 
I don't want to hear about any of that because unless you're going to match up with the Old Testament, which they have studied and know so well, if you can't match up with this being from the line of David, then you might as well stop. Matthew, talking to an audience like that, knowing that very well, that's where he begins. He begins by showing a genealogy that says this is from the line of David. Now, the second thing you kind of see here as you're kind of going through this, you guys memorize that? Good. You got that one down? The second thing you're going to notice is then he goes into about women. Now, a genealogy in general at this time period wouldn't have women in it. You could do it. It's, I mean, obviously you could do it, but most people wouldn't do it. But when you're saying, I want to show you a genealogy that shows you where Jesus Christ comes from, and I want to show you how it goes to the King David way long ago, most likely you're going to use men all the way through because all you're trying to show is the heir. The heir is apparent and it goes all the way to Jesus. But Matthew, for some reason, takes these these huge detours to show you women. And then not just to show you women, but to really spend some time on them, to like make sure you understand who they were because they're not even normal choices. The historians of this time period, when they would write about someone, and we have some some writings from this time period, what you would see is all the historians are hired people. It wasn't like you just had people writing history books in this time period. You had to hire a historian to do uh, writing of your family. So the people that would actually do it would be the wealthy or the, the politicians or military leaders. These are the type of people that were writing. That's why most of our writings are about great generals and all these battles and how amazing the battle was. And then like with one line, and then he lost a couple, he lost this one. But then this one, you've got to see this one. It's just huge. That's what we have because the people paying for it are going to want certain aspects to be embellished. And so then you have the kids. The kids are the most hilarious part. You know some of these guys had a lot of kids, and yet they disappear out of the writings. The ones that didn't do anything, the ones that are sort of like, well, he, you know, he was a singer. You know, just whatever. <laughs> they want to write about the next general that took over or the next politician that took over. That's what we see in these, these manuscripts from so long ago. So when you take a historic piece like this, and then you think, Matthew, it wasn't hired. He's just writing because he was with Jesus. He's writing in such a way that went so contrary to what everybody else would be doing. Not only to have women, but then the choices that he did. In verse 3, he begins writing. He says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amadab. Amadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon or Salmon. Those of you that are linguistics, you probably know all these names a lot better than me. That's fine. It really doesn't matter, but it's cool if you guys know it better. But it's Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. See how exciting this is? Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Anybody know who that is that he's describing right there? Bathsheba. See some scholars. I like this. Bathsheba, you wouldn't really have to go to church, to maybe just a little bit, to know who Bathsheba was. 
Because when people talk about King David, for some reason they really like to talk about this story. Oh yeah, King David, he was the one that saw that girl on top of the house. And then he has an affair with that girl. And then he has the husband sort of in the front of the battle. And so he dies in battle so then he can marry her. It's a great story about King David. And remember who he's talking to. The Jewish audience. The Jewish audience must be sitting there going, dude, why? I mean, you didn't just say Bathsheba. You said, oh yeah, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He's like, stick the knife in and just twist it to this Jewish audience who they love King David. That's, that's like the man. And he doesn't, he does it in such a way almost to be offensive. He wants him to really, really get where he's about to go. And that's, the question we want to answer, what exactly is he doing? This Tamar, she was known as a prostitute and known for incest. Rahab, apparently a foreign harlot of some kind. Ruth was a foreigner. Bathsheba was an adulterer. He wants them to understand where Jesus came from. In fact, three of these people aren't even Jewish. So he wants them to see not only are they really bad, they're not Jewish. So when he gets to the end of this, they're like, oh, man, why did you list his genealogy this way? And he hasn't even told them how great Jesus is yet. Why would he do that? The reason he would do that is he wants, he wants them to know that he came from sinners. And he wants us to know that he came from sinners. This is such a key point that we really need to understand as we think about one of the greatest stories of all time, the Christmas story, we need to understand the depth of what he was trying to show us with this moment. And that is that he is the light that has come into a dark world. The world is full of sin. He didn't come in that and just be surprised by that. He knew that when he came. He knew that coming into the world. And Matthew wants to point out in such a way saying, not only did he know it, he came from it. His line is full of it. So that when he comes into this world, he comes from this line of sinners for sinners. And he comes in a way and says, I am going to die for your sin. And when I die for your sin, I am going to understand your sin so much that whatever you have brought forward, I mean, look at my line. There's a lot of bad stuff in my line. Whatever you have brought forward, it doesn't overwhelm me. It doesn't surprise me. I get it. And Matthew's writing, Matthew, the tax collector, the guy who is your next door neighbor that we talked about a few weeks ago, the guy that you don't like because he comes over and he keeps wanting money from you for everything that you do, that guy, the guy that's hated by his community, The guy that when the Messiah walked through his neighborhood and came up to his booth and said, follow me, everybody else was hoping he would strike him down, but he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says, follow me. Matthew says, okay. And he begins to follow. And we walk through this whole series that as you follow, you believe. And as you believe, you become so in love with this person And you get to know them in such a way in which you realize he came for the sinner. He came for me. And Matthew, Matthew understands Rahab, Bathsheba, Tamar. And so she purposely, or she, he purposely puts them in the genealogy because he gets it that Christ 
came for them. The story is about them. The story is about you and I. That whatever we come, whatever unrighteousness, whatever sin, we cannot approach it in a sense of, I deserve heaven. And I don't, I don't think we do. But we sometimes come in with a shame of, God, my shame is too much. But the truth, truth is that Christ was born for you and I, for the sinners. Christ was born to save us. It's okay, you don't have to clap, even though that was a great point. There were three functions that the Jewish audience will be looking at. With a genealogy, you would see three major things. First, there's this really interesting showing the character of a particular line. They were always looking at, okay, this guy wants to work with me, or I want to do some kind of business deal with him. Tell me who your father is. You might know a little bit about that. You see it in other cultures sometimes. Your family matters a lot. And so this was going on big time with genealogy. So your father is this guy, and then this guy, and then this guy. Okay, you're a pretty good person. Yeah, I could do a deal with you. Interesting, huh? Yeah? All right. So if there was bad stuff, though, somewhere in that genealogy, they wouldn't want to deal with them. So your character was a big deal. So they would have these fine lines to know where exactly they came from. In fact, you see old movies even doing it. This person came from this. You know, it's just interesting how it sort of drops off after a while. The second thing we do is we demonstrate God's working in history. They were following not only the Israelites, which is obvious that they had a very, very tight line to show every action all the way and how God worked through it, but they were also watching how God worked with other groups of people. So they were watching tons of genealogy. It was a big deal. It was the ESPN of that day. And then the third was to prove biological succession. So now this one is huge for the Messiah, but it was also huge for passing down land, uh, passing any sort of estate down, money. They would want to know, okay, because they would have the year of Jubilee when things would return. There was lots of, of rules. And so knowing where the particular, uh, if that's for me, just hold it. I'll get it later. They would know where this particular uh, person would belong to. And so any sort of land, would they would know exactly where it went when it finally went back to the original person. And so with the Messiah, there was also this biological, okay, we have to know where they come from before we're going to believe. So when we get to Matthew 1.16, and it finally says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. You see, that's said differently there. The husband of Mary is how that's one said. By whom, another change in this verse, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This is a key verse, especially how it's structured. The idea of the Virgin Mary, I think it's one of the most made fun of things about our Christian faith. I mean, I hear comedians all the time joking about how we, the Christians are built on the idea of a woman who was a virgin having their king. I can see the humor in it. But it's so important that we really know why that moment happened that way. You have to go back all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, where it says, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the big verse that says that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. And so they start following Solomon and then following from heir to heir all the way down to Joseph. So they're watching this very, very, very closely. 
They want to make sure that the heir comes from this line. And it has to. has to go through all the way to Joseph. But they also know about another verse. And this verse comes from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. Thus says the Lord. See, God gets really mad here. Really mad at a particular king that is just so far from where he's supposed to be. So far from loving God that he's doing things that are just, you can read about it. It's awful. Write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. The Jews know about this verse too. And they're, they're very confused by it. They don't understand how they can even have both of these verses fit together. And you have to think of Satan over here in the corner going, what did he just say? Like he's shrinking down and all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute, I won. It's like thinking about a football analogy. Like you're in the last 30 seconds of the game. You threw the ball and you get that touchdown to take the lead. And you're so excited because all you have to do is kick the ball to the other team with like 30 seconds left. And it just let the clock run out. I mean, no one could do anything with a one second, you know, like difference in a game, right? Any Alabama, <laughs> Alabama fans? But all they have to do is kick the ball back to the other team and it's over. They, they cannot. There's no way they're going to score. That's what he's thinking in that moment. He's so excited because he realizes God has made a huge mistake which is a mistake to think that way, but that's what he's thinking. We get to see the rum back in Luke. When Luke appears and does a genealogy, you see it being drastically different. So you've got Matthew's genealogy of Christ and Luke's genealogy of Christ, and you put them next to each other, and you think, there is a major error here. <laughs> There's something seriously wrong, because they don't match up at all, and they're talking about Christ. Shouldn't that be sort of why the Bible is not real because these are so badly off from each other. But look a little closer at them, and you'll find three sort of distinct things that are different. Matthew begins with Abraham, and then goes all the way down to Joseph and then Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus and goes up. So Luke goes all the way up, and you see it go to Adam, which is impressive. All the way up to Adam. And then between David and Joseph, there's two distinct lists that are different. And that's where sort of the question comes in. Why is there a major difference here? Luke has 40 names and Joseph only has, or no, Matthew only has 26. So what's going on as you look at these two lists? Here's the run back. Here's the exciting moment. The first time I realized what God was doing in this, I had goosebumps because it really said something to me. See, what's happening is you have to be an heir and it has to be Joseph. And so it goes through Solomon, the firstborn, all the way down. And Joseph, being the adopted father of Christ, makes him heir to the throne. But when you look at Mary's line, and you go all the way up to Mary, you, when you hit Nathan, Nathan is one of the four sons of King David. So the bloodline can still go through Nathan. So now the blood is pure. It wasn't cursed as Solomon's was. And the blood goes all the way to Mary, who is a virgin, therefore the blood still staying pure as Jesus is born. And when I read that, I was like, oh my, I was overwhelmed by it. As most of you are, I can see it in your faces. You're just overwhelmed. It overwhelmed me because I realized for me, man, God is always in control. 
even though these major things are happening, there's curses going on, there's crazy just stuff, he still had this master plan. And it's still coming together in incredible ways. And for me, I turned around and I looked at my own life and said, you know what? That's true of my life as well. There have been some moments that I really don't like. Some moments in which I don't understand what God was doing. But that moment led to this moment. And then this moment led to this one. And God seemed to have his hand on each part all the way up to today. And as I have trusted in him, as I have been faithful with my life where I have been at, it's been life-changing to see that God is in control. What does it mean for your life? As you begin to think about your past, have you trusted him? Have you been faithful with where you are? As you trust, as you are faithful, you can see it all over the Bible. He will take care of you. And it's going to probably be some miracles some miracles that you look back and you go, I cannot believe how this all worked together. And here I am today, sitting at Canyon at this moment. God brought it all to this moment. And as I trust him with my future, knowing that whatever is going on out there, if I will be faithful with where I am with God, if I will be faithful right here, it's going to take care of my future. That's what I saw when I put these two lines together. It was my unexpected Christmas, just a gift from God. It reminded me of the movie Titanic. And if you've seen this movie, there's a scene at the end where there's, there's four quartet band, and they're playing on the top of this boat as it's sinking in this freezing cold water. And I remember watching that scene going, movies, these are so stupid. And so I had to look it up. I said, there's no way that's real. And I look it up, and I Google it, and I see... Not only were there four, there was eight. There was an eight-piece band playing on the deck of the Titanic as it's going down. And as I read that, I thought, how, how fitting, how fitting of us as humans that we would be more concerned about making sure our music is staying on the stand, that our chair isn't slipping as the boat is sinking into a freezing cold ocean. How fitting it is that we so often are so encompassed in what is in our hands right in front of us. What's going on here when the boat is going around, going down around us? Our life with Christ is crumbling. We don't spend time with them. We don't have a relationship with them. We don't really know him that well. We don't read his Bible. We don't pray. We have this boat going down and we're concerned about keeping the music on the stand. We're concerned with the minute details of our day-to-day living. How often do we do that? The unexpected Christmas is to look at this story and say, you know what? God is always in control. This story of Jesus being born, even in it, the miracles are stunning. In a genealogy, what he, Matthew does in a genealogy is stunning. To see him take care of these, all these minute details. To say to an audience, you don't need to come with your righteous self. You don't need to come with your unrighteous self. He knows both of them. And he came to save you, the sinner. He knows who you are. He loves you. Whatever baggage you brought into the room with you, he loves you. That is an incredible gift. My prayer is this as we face this Christmas, that we will be liberated from a false sense of righteousness, 
and a hopeless sense of unrighteousness. And that we would be a group of people who every day of our lives and the way we live out our faith would live it out in such a way that says, I can approach my Father in heaven, not through the grid or the filter of what I've done, but because of what God through Christ has done for me. That's the gift. That's the gift that this is. This season is all about. Let me pray for you. With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around for a few minutes. If you're in this room and you've come in with a sense of guilt, a sense of baggage, and you need this gift, the gift of what Christ being born was all about, the gift of coming into a world full of sin, but knowing all about it, the genealogy was full of it. If you're in this room and you need that gift today, you want to start this Christmas season a little bit different, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to pull you up front. I'm not going to do anything weird. But if you're here and you're ready to make that prayer, I want to pray with you. So will you raise your hand and say, that's me. That is my prayer for this season. I need this gift. Just quickly lift it up. Amen. Anyone else? Quickly lift it up. Amen. God, we love you so much. And thank you. Thank you for, for what Christmas is. Thank you for this unexpected Christmas. And thank you for these men in our history who were brave enough to write it in such a way that was contrary to what everybody else was doing. I pray we would live that way too. In Jesus' name, amen.